So during our time together this morning, I want to challenge you to turn over this question in your mind. How do you respond to truth? Perhaps the first thought that comes to mind as you, as you consider our question is, well, that kind of depends on how the truth is delivered to me, right? And, and that's a fair point, right? An old preacher was once asked by his fellow ministers why he thought people responded so well to his messages in contrast to their own. And he responded with a short story. He said, one day a man named Hard Truth walked into a small town. He was, he was bulging with muscles and he stared directly at each person that he saw. Some of the townspeople had encountered him before and had been hurt by him. So they just hid. Most people ignored hard truth as they continued with their work or play. Only a few very bold people actually talked to him. The next day, since it was cold, before he walked into town, hard truth borrowed a hat from his friend's story, a coat from his friend's illustration, and gloves from the twins' mercy and grace. To hard truth's amazement, this time the townspeople received him gladly, even inviting them into their homes for coffee and to discuss their hardest challenges and some of their greatest fears. The moral of the story is obvious. How the truth is presented absolutely matters. And often the more thoughtfully truth is presented the easier it is to receive. Point granted. But the issue that I want us to focus on this morning is to really think about the way that you personally tend to respond to the truth when you come across it, no matter how it is delivered. Winston Churchill once said, people occasionally stumble over the truth, but most of them pick themselves up and hurry off as if nothing had happened. So what about you, what about you this morning? If you happen to stumble upon the truth this morning, will you receive it? Even embrace it? And will you seek to live differently in light of it? Or, if you stumble upon the truth this morning, will you pick yourself up and just hurry off as if nothing has happened? In today's passage, the response of people to the truth takes center stage. Now, our passage is Acts chapter 22, verses 22 through 29. 
To get into the flow, we'll just begin back with verse 17. Recall that in this section, Paul has just recounted his, his Jewishness to the Jewish people, and he has just described a dramatic encounter with Jesus Christ. So far, so good. And then Paul says, When I had returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple, I fell into a trance and saw him, that is Jesus, saying to me, Make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly, because they will not accept your testimony about me. And I said, Lord, they themselves know that in one synagogue after another, I imprisoned and beat those who believed in you. And when the blood of Stephen, your witness, was being shed, I myself was standing by and approving and watching over the garments of those who killed him. And he said to me, go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. And then our verses, up to this word, they listened to him. Then they raised their voices and said, Away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. And as they were shouting and throwing off their cloaks and flinging dust into the air, the tribune ordered him to be brought back into the barracks, saying that he should be examined by flogging to find out why they were shouting against him like this. But when they had stretched him out for the whips... Paul said to the centurion who was standing by, Is it lawful for you to flog a man who is a Roman citizen and uncondemned? When the centurion heard this, he went to the tribune and said to him, What are you about to do? For this man is a Roman citizen. So the tribune came and said to him, Tell me, are you a Roman citizen? And he said, Yes. The tribune answered, I bought this citizenship for a large sum. Paul said, but I am a citizen by birth. So those who were about to examine him withdrew from him immediately. And the tribune also was afraid. For he realized that Paul was a Roman citizen. And that he had bound him. So Spirit, lead us now. Accomplish what you desire in us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Pastorally, the reason that I want us to think about the way that we respond to truth this morning is because the way we respond to truth, the way we respond to truth reveals what we actually think about it. The way we respond to truth reveals what we really think about it. Just holding that in our minds this morning, we'll look at the people's response to truth in verses 22 through 24, and then we'll look at Paul's rescue by truth in verses 25 through 29. Now, what makes this scene here at the end of chapter 22 not just dramatic, but actually tragic is the significance of the truth that the people are rejecting. I mean, it would be one thing to just reject Paul's personal missions strategy. It's another matter altogether 
to reject the words of Jesus given through the apostle Paul. So on this point, let's, let's be very, very clear. The people respond to Paul's words with obvious anger as they reject his witness to the truth. But the question is, what truth are they actually rejecting? Verse 22, up to this word, they listen to him. So in context, it seems like it's, it's really these last few verses, 17 through 21, that, that really set the people off. Apparently, they were, they were willing to listen, that is, until they disagreed with what Paul was saying. I think this is interesting, and I think it's very instructive for us, because remember, what we're doing is we're considering how is it that we respond to the truth when it is revealed to us. You know, a typical pattern that we find on social media is to reject out of hand anything that is disagreed with. Verse 22. Then attempt to cancel the person who said the thing that was offensive. Rid this man from the earth. Verse 22. And then... Virtue signal disapproval to as many people as possible, verse 23. Fling dust up in the air, make sure everybody knows this is absolutely unacceptable to you. So either secretly social media was behind the scenes that were fueling this event in the first century, or tribalism, cancel culture, and virtue signaling has always been fundamentally a heart condition. And social media is just the contemporary means of that expression. So, as as we engage with others in our culture or on social media, may we as the people of God reflect a, a kind of relentless reasonableness because we want to be able to engage with people whether or not that virtue that is relentless reasonableness is reciprocated or not so just think of a post or something of that nature from a news source or a family member or a friend or a brother and sister in Christ and your thought immediately is you just want to roll your eyes. That is exactly the place that we need to demonstrate relentless reasonableness. We need to love them in that place, on that point. Because who we are on social media may be worse than who we are in reality may be better than who we are in reality, but it's not different than who we are in reality. Almost all of us try to present ourselves as better than we actually are, at least until you get to the comment section. Now, it would be easy for us to think of examples of the way people respond to truth and and just dismiss the 
rejection without actually engaging in in self-reflection. So, with respect to truth, let's say, just found in God's word, revealed in God's word, let's ask ourselves, how do we personally respond to the truth that we see here? This is, it's a really important question because the way that we respond to truth reveals what we actually think about it, including what we think about God's word. So, Spirit, please just help us as we walk through this. As the people of God, we need to respond to the truth revealed in God's word with agreement, with adoration, and with action. I submit to you this morning that if even one of these characteristics is missing, agreement or adoration or action, if even one of those three is missing, we are not fully embracing, and therefore at some level we are actually rejecting God's revealed word. The first response to God's revealed word in the Bible is is to believe it. As believers, the first thing that we should do when we see God's truth revealed is to believe it. That is to agree with every single word of it. To reject any part of God's word as outdated, irrelevant, or offensive for our world and our culture, even at this time, is to respond to God's truth ultimately by rejecting it as untrue. Flannery O'Connor once said, the truth doesn't change based on our ability to stomach it. In Philippians 2.16, we are exhorted to hold fast to the word of life, but we will never hold fast to any idea that we don't actually believe to be true. Now, of course, there will be moments of doubt. Of course, there will be hard doctrines to process. Of course, there will always be a sense of growing in the grace and the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. The reality is that at times, our faith will waver. But beloved, by the persevering power of the Holy Spirit, we can ever proclaim, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. Now, when we agree with the truth, we also need to adore the one who communicated it to us. Since all scripture is breathed out by God, 2 Timothy 3, every truth found here, every truth found here reveals the character of our glorious God. So it's, it's one thing to agree with the truth, but what if you're a believer in Jesus and you say, yes, I agree that's true, but in your heart you actually resent it. That's, that's not the response of a, of a believer who's filled with the Holy Spirit. The reason is because Scripture is most essentially a revelation of God by God. 
Therefore, we are to exult in the Bible's wisdom and beauty and power because it reflects, that is, the Bible reflects the wisdom and beauty and power of the one who inspired it. Psalm 119 and verse 14, in the way of your testimonies, I delight as much as in all riches. My soul is concerned with longing for your rules at all times. Psalm 119 and verse 20, this is my comfort in affliction, that your promise gives me life. Psalm 119 and verse 50. The law of your mouth is better to me than thousands of gold and silver pieces. Psalm 119 and verse 72. Which causes the psalmist to explain, oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. Psalm 119 and verse 97. So, in order to rightly respond to truth... First of all, we need to agree with it. Secondly, we need to adore it. And then thirdly, we need to respond with action to its call and to its command. James 1.22. Be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. So, so to apply that verse in the moment is to say, I might see a truth, I might agree with it, I might even rejoice in what it reveals about God, and then do nothing in response to what it commands me to do. And James says, when that happens, we are deceiving ourselves. Those are sobering words. Or Jesus himself said in Luke eleven twenty eight, Blessed are those who hear the word of God and keep it. He also said, if you love me, you will keep my commands. John 14 and verse 15. So what's the tension that you feel in your soul at this moment? What if you've struggled in agreeing with things that are revealed in God's word? Or you might say, I certainly don't love everything that I see revealed in God's word. And I know for a fact I've not taken action in response to revealed truth in God's word. Where does that leave us? Depicted before you today on the communion table is a visual reminder of the sacrifice that made our, our faith-dependent and spirit-filled obedience possible. The son's sacrifice on our behalf made forgiveness of sin and the restoration of relationship with the Father a reality. Where does, where does motivation to obey from the heart come from? Where does the freedom and joy that the gospel makes possible, where does that come from? 
What truth helps us here? Because of the sacrifice we are celebrating today, that is in communion, we have been set free from the penalty of sin and we have been given spiritual power to fight against sin. Because of our restored relationship with God, through our union with Jesus, we are now free to pursue obedience to God, that is to please and honor God for the first time really from the heart. Because of the presence of the Spirit who guarantees our inheritance, we are now able to respond to revealed truth by taking action. And not just taking action. Motivation is crucial here. By taking action without fear of failure or the frustration of seeking to make ourselves acceptable to God through our obedience. The gospel frees us from that reality. The spirit comes to us in fulfillment of the new covenant promise when we place our faith in the substitutionary sacrifice of Jesus, God's Messiah, on our behalf, represented by the blood and the wine on this table. That is the good news of the gospel message itself. So then, what was the truth that the people were actually rejecting? The tragedy of the people's response to Paul's message is that by rejecting Paul's words as he he bore witness to Jesus, the people were not merely rejecting Paul, but also rejecting the transforming power of the gospel of grace to which Paul had just testified in his own life through his conversion experience. Further, by rejecting the Messiah's words testified to by Paul, right here in verses 17 through 21, by rejecting the Messiah's words testified to by Paul, the people were actually rejecting the Messiah himself. For you can't say, Jesus, I receive you as Savior and Lord. I just reject the things that you say. It doesn't work. It's not possible. And by rejecting the command of Jesus to bring the good news of the gospel to the Gentiles, the people were not just rejecting the commission itself, but the message Paul was commissioned to proclaim. So whether gloriously or or tragically, as is the case here, the way we respond to truth reveals what we really think about it. And the more significant the truth, the more important our response So in verses 25 through 29 here, as Paul is rescued from the hostile crowd by the the Roman official or the Roman tribune and his men, truth again proves to be a matter of life and death for Paul. You know, every year we hear stories of, of criminals who's who, who for decades had sat in prison, or at least convicted of a crime. And every year we hear stories about those convictions being overturned after new DNA evidence, DNA evidence emerges. 
We also hear of cases of crimes, which are called cold cases, which are solved years later, again, after new truth emerges. That is, new DNA evidence is brought to bear. What the, what the evidence does in this case is it represents the truth which advances justice itself. That is, what is good and right and true. Now, Paul is ushered away here from the hostile mob in verse 24. He's taken to the back where the soldiers live in the barracks. But note the reason he's taken back there. Verse 25, the tribune wanted to find out why the crowd was so angry with Paul. In other words, if you think about it this way, Paul was rescued by the tribune's pursuit of truth. Not ultimate truth, but truth nonetheless. Toward the end of chapter 23, the tribune will will summarize his actions by, by saying he rescued Paul because... He desired to know the charge for which they were accusing him. And that is a matter of truth or justice. Now, I can't commend the way that the Romans uh, were going to try to extract the truth from Paul. But it's fascinating to consider that he was going to be flogged, not as a punishment, but in the pursuit of truth. And this really was a matter of life and death here for Paul. Because as they stretch him out to, to, to scourge him, to flog him, which is the same punishment that Jesus had, which nearly killed him right before he was executed on the cross, this, this punishment involved a wooden handle with leather straps and, and bone and metal embedded in those straps. It was especially the Roman Flogging was so brutal that it literally broke people's bones because they hit them so hard. It ripped off flesh, it exposed organs, and many, many people just bled to death as a result of it. So this really was a matter of life and death for Paul. But in a sense, he demonstrates some rather relentless reasonableness given the circumstances. He's not flailing around on the ground going, please don't beat me. I'm a Roman citizen. Don't do this. Rather, he asks a rather shrewd question. As they stretch Paul out to scourge him, he asks, is it lawful for you to flog a man who is a Roman citizen and uncondemned? Paul has a lot riding on the tribune's response to truth here. So Paul appeals to his sense of justice, or at least his fear of consequence. These men may not have feared God or been concerned about some just babbler talking about eternal consequences of offending God, but they were concerned about violating their own Roman laws and the consequences that might befall them if they did. So in this instance, they may not have feared Jesus, but they certainly feared Caesar. 
when the new information emerges that Paul is a Roman citizen, we might call that a revelation of truth. New information comes into the equation. The tribune responds by verifying the truth directly by talking to Paul in verses 27 and 28. And then the truth about Paul's natural-born Roman citizenship ultimately vindicates Paul in verse 29. Now, what's fascinating about this is that the tribune himself says, hey, look, I bought my citizenship. Paul presumably looks straight at him and says, I was born in Rome. And that apparently trumps the argument because it's likely that the tribune, what he means here is, I paid a bribe to get my Roman citizenship. Further, it's probably likely, since he wasn't a natural-born Roman citizen, that he paid an additional bribe to get the position that he's actually in as a tribune. But natural-born citizenship in this case trumped the paid-for citizenship. And, and we know this is the case because it's, it's, it, it reminds us of when the soldiers confronted Jesus. When the truth comes out, everyone backs away. I think in that case, they were terrified of Jesus. In this case, they're terrified by the truth and the consequences of what Caesar might ultimately do. But here's what strikes me about this scene. What strikes me about it is how much a comparatively small truth, like Paul's identity as a Roman citizen, how much that served the bigger purpose of providing an opportunity for Paul to proclaim the much weightier truth of the gospel itself to rulers and kings of the most powerful nation on earth. Without that citizenship, that does not happen. It's Paul's citizenship that allowed him to stay under arrest and to keep appealing to the next higher authority. And at every stop along the way, Paul gets an opportunity to proclaim the truth. Why are they so angry with this guy? What's going on? I'm happy to defend myself. I'm happy to have the opportunity to talk about why. And he brings the gospel to bear in every one of those situations. In fact, one of the kings later will say, Paul, are you going to convince me to become a Christian in a matter of moments? The small reality of where Paul was born is ultimately, from a human perspective, what makes the next several chapters of Acts even possible. Paul said it this way, I do not account my life of any value nor as precious to myself if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. So, as it relates to us, whether we might find ourselves one day in a position where we've been falsely accused, or whether we find ourselves in a position, having been once falsely accused, that we are now vindicated by the truth, we need to seize both of those opportunities and the accompanying dangers of each to point others to Jesus so that our convictions and our humility and our boldness through the power of the Holy Spirit would win the day.
And through our witness to the truth, may the one who actually is the way, the truth, and the life, may he receive glory and honor and power and dominion forever and ever and ever. Amen.